0: This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Apocalypse If you're listening, then you, like we here at the Word of the Week, have survived the new year. And to us, that isn't an insignificant thing. Because we here at the Word of the Week used to be absolutely terrified of not surviving the new year. When we were children, long, long ago, we used to sit up with our family watching Dick Clark's New Year's Eve broadcast from Times Square, New York. And as the big ball descended, and our family members counted down the seconds until the new year, blissfully unaware of the terror closing over our prepubescent mind, we slammed our eyes shut. Because we knew that this time, this year, this would be the end. The end of the world. Apocalypse We have no idea where our young mind got the idea that the end of the year might be the end of the world. Eventually we did get over that fear. By the time the year 2000 came around, we were immune to the terror that that year would be the last one. A fear that gripped many others, what with foolishly short-sighted computer programmers and just the general poetic rightness of the world ending in a year with a big round number. When the 2012 Mayan calendar fervor hit, we just laughed it off. But we still haven't forgotten those years spent in baffled terror watching our family countdown, watching a giant illuminated glass ball slide down a flagpole, time sliding inexorably toward it. The End Apocalypse Which raises an interesting question. Why do we count down the new year? by watching a giant sphere descend a flagpole on top of one Times Square in New York City. Well, the tradition of the Times Square New Year's Eve ball started a hundred years ago. But the concept of a time ball is even older. It dates back to 1833 and to a place that pretty much sets the clock for the entire world. A place whose story starts even earlier in 1675. Sir Christopher Wren, an architect and astronomer from Oxford University, recommended to King Charles II of England that, in order to provide accurate navigational information given the growing importance of sea travel, a royal observatory should be commissioned to accurately track the movements of the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. And so, Flamsteed House, named for the first astronomer royal, John Flamsteed, was built atop the ruins of Greenwich Castle. Within a year of the commission, the observatory was finished and Flamsteed took up residence in the house. Over the next 40 years, he made over 50,000 astronomical observations and greatly refined our understanding of astronomy in the passage of time. Flamsteed and his successor, Edmund Halley, plotted basically every visible star in the sky during their tenures as astronomers royal. They also helped develop the idea of measuring longitude along with the development of John Harrison's naval chronometer, which you should remember from our grand three-part epic about the history of navigation that allowed sailors to accurately measure their position anywhere on Earth, as long as they could accurately set their clocks. As for that, in 1833, for the first time ever, the correct time was broadcast to the general public. Well, to naval captains, anyway. And not really broadcast, just visible, A bright red ball was hoisted to the top of a pole on top of Flamsteed House, and at precisely 1 p.m. it was dropped. Ship's captains in the Thames River were thus able to set their naval chronometers. Well, more precisely, they were able to check the accuracy of their chronometers. What actually happened on that time, and every day thereafter, was that the ball was hoisted halfway up the pole at precisely 12.55 p.m. At 12.58 p.m. it was hoisted to the top of the pole, and at 1 p.m. it was dropped. By marking those three times, a captain could ensure that the chronometer was set to the proper time, and also that it was keeping time at the proper rate. And soon thereafter, time balls became the standard way for observatories to communicate the proper time to ships at dock around the world. How did the time ball become the standard way to celebrate the New Year? Well, that's all thanks to the New York Times. Yes, the newspaper. In 1904, the New York Times had a new building erected in the heart of downtown New York City. The building stood at the head of an open plaza, a sort of town square called Longacre Square. The newspaper moved its office to that building, which they then called the Times Building. And then Longacre Square was renamed to Times Square so that the New York Times office was located in the Times Building at one Times Square. And by the way, it is Times Square, not Time Square. And now you know why. To celebrate the New Year, a massive fireworks display would be launched from the roof of the Times Building while thousands of New Yorkers gathered in the square below. But Time's owner, Adolph Aux, was not content with having the building and the entire intersection named after his newspaper. He wanted his paper's building to be the center of the New Year's celebration, too. Everyone had fireworks. He wanted something big and grand, something to symbolize the start of the New Year. And, according to the story, it was his electrician who recommended a time ball. And thus, in 1907, the first time ball was dropped to mark the start of the new year atop one Times Square in New York City. It was a 700-pound iron and wood monstrosity with 100 light bulbs. Today's ball, now a permanent fixture, weighs in at 11,000 pounds of Waterford crystal and over 32,000 Phillips Luxion LED lights. By the way, There are only two years since 1907 that the Times Square ball did not drop. 1942 and 1943. In observance of wartime blackouts during World War II. But we digress. Let's get back to the subject of eschatology. Yes, that's what we were discussing. And what we were terrified of way back in the day. See, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos. It means the study of the end, and it is the branch of theology specifically concerned with the end of everything. Apocalypse The word apocalypse is a popular one in nerddom. Often it's adorned with a prefix that turns it into a genre of science fiction, science fantasy, or just outright fantasy. The world of Mad Max is a post-apocalyptic world. Meanwhile, The Walking Dead takes place in a world in the throes of a zombie apocalypse. Classic films like Terminator and The Matrix showed us the fallout of the robot apocalypse. And natural disasters like those depicted in 2012 and The Day After Tomorrow show us the end results of the environmental apocalypse. In point of fact, blockbuster movies tend to go through periods a bit like classical artists. Whereas Pablo Picasso had his blue period, Hollywood had its asteroid apocalypse period with deep impact and Armageddon. And so, we tend to use the word apocalypse to mean end of the world for all practical purposes, and then just attach a descriptor to explain what thing it was that ended the world. Our favorite game, Dungeons & Dragons, actually has some pretty strong roots in the post-apocalypse, believe it or not. In fact, one of the game's core concepts was born underneath a dwindling sun on a cold, barren earth. An earth on whom civilization had collapsed and been forgotten, and then had risen again and reached a sort of new medieval period among the technological relics of the distant past. An earth on whom magic had reappeared, and along with it had come terrible monsters. It was Jack Vance's dying earth. John Holbrook Vance was born in 1916 in San Francisco, though his family moved to Oakley along the Sacramento River. Raised by his mother and grandfather, He loved to explore the wilderness around the family's California ranch. But when his grandfather passed away, Vance was forced to bounce from odd job to odd job to help support himself and his mother. Eventually he entered college, where he flitted between majors without a real purpose, though he discovered that he enjoyed writing. After that, he worked as an electrician in the naval shipyards at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. He left that job just one month before the World War II Japanese attack in 1941. He tried to enter the military after that, but failed due to his poor eyesight. Later, he cheated on an eye exam and was able to join the merchant marines as a seaman and discover a passion for sailing. It was during his time in the service that Jack Vance wrote a series of short stories that would inspire the young Gary Gygax when he created his chainmail fantasy war game and the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. The series of six short stories, which were published in 1950 as one collection, known as The Dying Earth, told the story of Mizarian the Magician and his adventures in the post-apocalyptic fantasy scape. But it was the second volume of Tales... Published as Eyes of the Overworld in 1966, that Gary became truly engrossed with and its tales of the amoral anti hero Kugel the Clever. Apart from offering a dark, cynical, and anti heroic take on fantasy with some subtle science fiction influences, the Dying Earth books also helped Gygax deal with a problem in his game of fantasy warfare called Chainmail. As he explained in a 2001 article for Pro Fantasy, Gygax had been trying to work out how to limit the fantastic power of wizards. And the Dying Earth series offered the answer. In that series, a magical spell was not just a set of instructions. It was magical in itself. And a wizard, in studying said spell, was gathering and shaping the magical energy needed to cast the spell in his own mind. Once he unleashed the magic of the spell, the entire spell was gone from the wizard's mind and had to be studied again. Fans of both D&D and the Dying Earth dubbed this system Vancean magic. But that detail itself is insufficient to describe the love that Gary Gygax had for Jack Vance's work. Many magical items and spells from Vance's books were also ported into the D&D universe. These included magical gems known as Iune Stones, a robe covered with working eyes that granted the wearer supernatural awareness, and some of the more obscure spells like Prismatic Spray and Everard's Black Tentacles. Gygax even teleported the players in his own games to a dying Earth-like world of his own devising. And he used all of these details with the full permission of the author. Gygax was so taken with the author and felt he owed him so much that he invited Vance to be the guest of honor at an early instance of TSR's annual gaming ballyhoo, Gen Con, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. But Vance politely declined, because he didn't seem to think he was worthy of the reverence that fans heaped on him. At least, in Gygax's opinion. Oh, for those wondering, the immortal wizard and lich lord Vecna was, in fact, named as an anagram of Vance. And also, years later, Gygax discovered that Vance had written a lord Gygax as a minor character into a later story in honor of the game creator and fan. But here's the problem with all of these apocalypses, from the dying earth, to the zombie apocalypse, to all the terminators and grey goos in between. They aren't apocalypses. There is actually only one apocalypse. And that's because the word apocalypse doesn't actually mean end of the world at all. It comes from a Greek word. And that Greek word means discovery or revelation. And the reason we associated it with the end of the world was because that name, apocalypse, ...was given to a specific book. Apocalypse Iannu. John's Revelation. Or rather, the Revelation of St. John the Divine. The final book of the New Testament of the Bible. And it deals with, you guessed it, the end of the world. There are some disagreements about the book of the Bible commonly called the book of Revelation. Yes, note that that is a singular revelation not the Book of Revelations. There was just one, but it was a doozy. Historians and scholars estimate that it was written sometime between 85 and 95 CE by John the Presbyter, also called St. John the Divine, or John the Elder. There remains a great deal of disagreement as to whether John the Elder and John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, are the same John. Historical evidence seems to be divided, But that doesn't matter for our purposes. We're talking about the Apocalypse, the Revelation. The book of Revelation begins with John describing his imprisonment in the Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos. He explains that he was visited by an angel and was given a vision and that he was to describe his vision in seven letters to seven different churches. Each of those churches had some particular failing and they had to be warned to remain true to the faith because of the coming of a final judgment. He then describes a figure he calls the Slain Lamb, Christ, the Son of God, appearing and holding forth a book with seven seals. As each of the seals is undone, a judgment is visited upon the earth. The most famous of these are the first four, the so-called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, though the figures in the biblical verse differ greatly from the popular depictions. As the first seal is undone, for example, A rider on a white horse goes forth with a crown and a bow, and he goes forth to conquer. It's unclear quite how this horseman got named Pestilence, but the first appearance of that name seems to be in 1906. After the second seal is undone, a rider goes forth on a red horse with a sword. With the third, a rider appears on a black horse with merchant scales as voices give out a sort of divine stock ticker of grain prices. And with the fourth seal, on a pallid horse comes the only horseman that is named in the Bible. Death. That pallid thing, by the way, is interesting. Normally, death is described as riding a pale horse. But the Greek word is chloros, which refers to a sickly greenish-gray color that was associated with corpses. Together, the four horsemen are sent to ride over a quarter of the earth, and kill by sword and with famine and plague and wild beasts and Hades comes along behind them, devouring those they kill. But the four horsemen are just the start of God's judgment for the wicked of the earth. When the seventh seal is opened, seven angels come forth with seven trumpets, and each trumpet heralds a further judgment. After the sixth trumpet is blown, a figure known as the beast from the earth will appear in the service of the devil to rule over the earth as a false prophet to draw the people who survived all of the other judgments away from the worship of God. While this figure is commonly referred to as the Antichrist, we should note that, technically, this is not the case. This creature is the beast of the earth. It may be the Antichrist, being a false savior, but the Bible doesn't explicitly call it that. In fact, there are several mentions of the Antichrist in other passages of the Bible. But these passages seem to use that term to refer to anyone who denies God's power or speaks against Christ as the Savior of humanity because they are working at a cross-purpose to Christ. See? Antichrist. But we digress. Back to the book of Revelation. Now, we've skipped over a lot. There are seven of just about everything, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, each filled with a different plague, and so on. But what's the point of all these judgments? Well, basically, they will be visited upon the wicked of the earth and give everyone on earth one last chance to repent and pledge their faith in God. Those who do so will be welcomed into the new kingdom of Christ where there will be peace and plenty and everlasting life, while the devil and the beast and all the wicked will be cast into a lake of fire for eternity. And the whole point was that John was warning the people of earth that this stuff was coming, and coming soon. And taken symbolically, there are some very interesting historical, literary, and theological interpretations of this particular book of the Bible. The interpretations basically break down into four groups. The first are the Preterists. They figure that most of the events in the book have already happened, and identify most of the events as events that occurred during the persecution of Christians in the fall of Rome. The accounts are symbolic representations of the spread of Christianity, the conquest of Rome, and so on. The Historicists take a similar view. They figure some of the events of the book of Revelation have already happened, but there's more to come. Again, the events are symbolic descriptions of historical events. The revelation covers the whole future span of history, and we're somewhere in the middle. The futurists say this stuff hasn't even started yet, and we'll have to wait and see. And meanwhile, the idealists see the whole thing as an allegory for a battle between morality and amorality that is constantly playing out across the span of human history. Oh, And while we're debunking the definitions of into the world words and on the subject of the Bible, we should also mention the word Armageddon. You might think that the word refers to the event that ushers in a not apocalypse. You know, like a nuclear war or an asteroid impact or something. Well, it isn't. It's a biblical word, too. It comes from the Hebrew name Har Megiddo, which is translated into the Greek as Tel Megiddo. What does it mean? Well, it's the name of a hilltop fortress and city in the Jezreel Valley in modern-day Israel. And it's significant because in the book of Revelation, it is where the demonic spirits of the beast would gather the kings of the earth for battle. Again, the interpretation of this passage, Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, is debated among scholars and theologians, and it may refer to the site of the ancient city of Megiddo, or just a mountain at which a bunch of people are gathered. And the nature of the war itself is unclear. But whatever all of that is really about, and what it was intended to be about, we can be sure of one thing. Our childhood fears did not come true. We live through another New Year's Eve. And as we embark on the third calendar year of this podcast, we'd like to say thank you for sticking with us on this journey and Happy New Year. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.